Hello, and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. First, let me explain what we're doing here. There are a lot of great podcasts, and there's some really great political podcasts, but we're doing something different. We're taking a different road. We're taking a fresh look at our political system. Introducing The X-Ray, a new political podcast about political power. Who wants it, who wills it, and why? A penetrating analysis of the biggest issues facing American politics. Interviews with power players, conversations with politicos, experts, and national journalists. And a special segment called X-Ray Vision, a fun exploration of the real person behind the political title. I'm your host, Fernando Espuelas, and I hope you'll join me every week on The X-Ray. For more information, check out thexray.org, and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray is a project of Issue One. I'm Weston Womp, and this is Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One. I think the former president, a lot of the people around him, want people to remain obsessed and focused with the past. And uh, that's just, forget about politics and government. That's just not a way to live, right? You cannot obsess over the past. You cannot change whatever happened in the past. And on top of that, it's it's based on, on something that there's no evidence for, right? That's just not why my parents came to this country. They actually came to this country to get away from that kind of mentality. They came to this country so elections and institutions would matter so that we would respect the rule of law. I don't want my daughters to grow up or to live in a country where rules don't matter, where one guy or one woman can say, well, I'm just going to declare this or that and that's how it's going to be. No, I, I just can't accept that. And I'm cautiously optimistic that Republicans are moving past that strange period. Democrats should take advantage of the fact that Mitch McConnell and others have said, yes, we're open to making sure that this law is clear in that uh, there's no discretion here in terms of accepting election results. From the school board in Miami-Dade County to the U.S. Congress and on to national television, Carlos Curbelo is one of the most unconventional and candid voices within the Republican Party. As the son of Cuban immigrants, he brings a unique and salient perspective to the challenges facing democracy, both at home and abroad. This is episode 40, a conversation with former Congressman Carlos Curbelo. Well, Congressman, thanks for joining us. I've found you to be one of the most unique and bold voices within conservatism these days. Will you just start by telling us a little bit of your personal story? So I was born in Miami in 1980. Uh, my, uh, my parents uh, fled Cuba in the 1960s. Uh, I'm the only child they were able to have, so they... Uh, they uh, um, you know, are really proud of me. They don't have much of a choice because there's no one else. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, my story is, it doesn't say as much about me or my family as it does about this country where two political refugees can uh, come to the United States, you know, dirt poor, start from scratch, and then one generation later, their son can serve in Congress. That's just amazing. That does not happen 
uh, almost anywhere else in the world. So uh, we're just extremely grateful to this country. Uh, I think um, a lot of um, immigrants, refugees, exiles tend to be uh, some of our best citizens because they're just so grateful and appreciative and don't take anything uh, about our freedoms here for granted. So that's uh, that's kind of the uh, the um, the way I was raised in terms of thinking about our country and thinking about government and politics. Uh, I um, I stayed in Miami for uh, for um, college. I went to University of Miami, and while I was there, I started uh, working for a member of Congress who I had interned for while I was in high school, and also paged for. Um, so I I kind of knew I liked uh, government and politics from an early age. 13, 14, 15. And uh, I stayed involved ever since, ran for the school board uh, after we had had our first daughter. We have two daughters, my wife and I. And uh, we had had our first daughter, decided to run for school board. And uh, then um, four years after that, ran successfully for Congress and, and served in the House and um, had a, uh, a wonderful experience, although I did uh, become very familiar with a lot of the weaknesses and flaws and challenges associated with our system of government. I think this is one of the things that fascinates me most about your rise in politics is that you started on at the school board level, but in one of America's largest and most important and frankly, highest quality school districts. Can you talk a little bit about how starting at the school board has informed informed your opinions and perspectives as a member of Congress, but even now as a, a national voice, it's just such a different place to start than so many people who end up in national politics. Well, a couple of things. First, the school board really is ground level when you are ultimately responsible for, for the education of, of people's kids, their, their sons and daughters. It's, uh, it's intense and people expect the best and they should. So there's a lot of um, just one-on-one -on -one meetings, listening to people, understanding how schools or the system more broadly is uh, in some cases failing them, in other cases uh, doing right by them. So that's a, that's a fairly unique perspective. And then I'll tell you in Miami-Dade County, my experience on the school board really gave me hope and confidence in government um, as a potential force for good, as uh, an agent in society that can actually contribute to people's lives by being efficient, by holding people accountable, uh, by being transparent. A lot of people who may not have known you uh, regionally uh, or people who've gotten to know you in the last couple of years may have because you've been quite outspoken about the unusual, let's just refer to it this way, the unusual few years that the Republican Party's had. You and I both are Republicans who've said, and quite early on said that the 2020 election was not stolen. How much pushback in South Florida have you gotten from saying those things about the election? And has it changed you know, from early 2021 now as we approach the middle of 2022? Well, I mean, I, 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 uh, I, um, I have gotten pushback. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it's broad, but, but there's certainly a, um, a small uh, but loud base of uh, 
former President Trump supporters who, who do believe the lie that the election was stolen. They, um, they uh, are convinced of this, even though there's no evidence, even though uh, countless judges, Republican appointed judges, Democratic point appointed judges have uh, in their rulings uh, expressed that there's been no evidence. There is still a, a uh, small and I think uh, dwindling number of, of people who believe in this. I will tell you lately, whether people have changed their minds or not, it seems like they have started to move past uh, this idea and the controversy and the um, a lot of the anger and the strong feelings that have been associated with this. Uh, and uh, I, I just think that's important because I think the former president, a lot of the people around him want people to remain obsessed and focused with the past. And uh, that's just forget about politics and government. That's just not a way to live, right? You cannot obsess over the past. You cannot uh, change uh, whatever happened in the past. And on top of that, it's it's based on on something that's that there's no evidence for, right? So uh, that's why he's lashed out at even supporters of his, like Mo Brooks, uh, a congressman who. I was running for Senate in Alabama because Mo Brooks said, well, I'm not going to keep talking about the 2020 election. And for, for Trump, that was uh, betrayal. Uh, and, uh, you know, since then, uh, they've had a falling out and Brooks has come out and said, well, you know, Trump asked me to try to overturn the election result, which, of course, uh, is what what he's expected of, of uh, anyone who, who claims to support him. And that's just not why my parents came to this country. They actually came to this country to get away from that kind of mentality. They came to this country so elections and institutions would matter so that we would respect uh, the rule of law. That's why I'm in this country, because my parents made that choice. So uh, we, um, we don't need to act. Uh, you know, and I know this term is politically incorrect uh, these days, but I'm not one for much political correctness, we don't need to act like third world countries. I mean, my family left uh, what has become a third world country uh, because they wanted something better for themselves and for future generations. So here we are, and I don't want my daughters to grow up or to live in a country where rules don't matter, where one guy or one woman can say, well, uh, I'm just going to declare this or that, and that's how it's going to be. No, I, I just can't accept that. And and I'm cautiously optimistic that Republicans are moving past, moving past that uh, that strange period, as you called it. I want to ask one follow up about the election and then come back to your family's perspective on authoritarianism versus democracy. The quick follow up is that one of the problems in the days after the 2020 election and before President Biden was sworn into office was there's so much ambiguity, even as the son of a former member of Congress, a lot of question about what the role of Congress is in counting electors, certifying an election, and even what these words mean. There's been some bipartisan talk in Washington and some agreement that we should revisit the Electoral Count app and for once and for all, 
clarify what the role of the vice president is and what the role of Congress is. Do you think this would be a good idea? How much time have you thought about this? I mean, certainly in hindsight, Vice President Pence ended up playing a pretty critical role by not going along with what um, President Trump thought to be the appropriate steps. Yeah, we should, Wes. And, and this is somewhere where Democrats, you know, they, they have their big goals on, on reforming elections and there's some you know good ideas there and some terrible ideas, but they should focus on what uh, we can all agree on. And uh, the, the Electoral Count Act, which for, for you know was never controversial, and, and I don't I don't think um, you know on its face uh, if you just look at it and say well we need to we need to clarify this because we just assume that that people would respect elections and that people would would do the right thing every time. And by the way, Wes and I was in the chamber in 2017 uh, when Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, presided over the uh, the counting of the electoral votes and and there was a, a cadre of Democrats on the House floor who wanted to challenge the results and uh, they were being boisterous and uh, it, uh, disruptive and I remember Joe Biden looking to the right because that's where Democrats sit I, I don't know why I was in the chamber because there were very few people in the chamber we, we used to kind of take this stuff for granted right we, we we knew who won the election and we moved on because we're a serious democracy. But Joe Biden looked to the right and slammed the gavel and said, enough, uh, it's over. Uh, so, so we never thought that we actually had to you know, go in and, and, and reform this law and, and uh, uh, make sure it's very specific and explicit. But because someone decided to, without any uh, evidence, without uh, any um, um, data, uh, to, to try to overturn an election, yes, we should. We should uh, make sure it's explicit. We should make sure that there's no discretion here, right? Uh, because uh, Vice President Pence uh, was a patriot. He refused uh, to go along with this uh, ill-fated plot. But someday uh, we might have a different uh, vice president. And um, it, things may not go the way they should. So, so definitely Democrats should take advantage of the fact that Mitch McConnell and others have said, yes, uh, we're open to uh, making sure that this law is clear uh, in that uh, there's no discretion here in terms of accepting election results. We'll be right back. We're taking a short break from today's episode to tell you about a new podcast that recently joined the Democracy Group, a podcast network that Swamp Stories is a part of. Village Squarecast brings together people who don't think or look alike to take on topics such as politics, religion, and race. For over 15 years, the Village Square has hosted hundreds of gatherings with tens of thousands of people in bars, churches, and even in the middle of Main Street. And now... They bring you their favorite conversations from inspiring leaders to regular people exhausted by the political rancor and looking for a better way. Check out Village Squarecast and listen wherever you get podcasts. All right, let's get back to it. Let's take a step back and think more broadly about the world and the challenges we see. It's been my experience that um, South Florida is the most distinctive and, and maybe aspirational 
place for the Republican Party right now because there are so many folks in our generation who whose family heritage actually encountered strong men. Uh, there's a different type of appreciation, uh, even sobriety about democracy. Are we in an inflection point in terms of democratic governance around the world? Obviously, Ukraine has taken center stage. I think it's caused a lot of people to think about uh, these freedoms. It can so easily be taken for granted. How do you perceive what's going on in the world from the perspective of the son of Cuban immigrants? Democracy is under threat. I, I think um, dictators like Vladimir Putin and uh, Xi Jinping, which that will be confirmed here in a few months that he is indeed a dictator, uh, have come to realize that that freedom is contagious. And their goal is to undermine our system of governance. They, they, they resent that uh, with technology, with social media, with uh, television, uh, the internet, their residents can see what it's like to live in a free society. And, and they prefer that. And that's a nuisance for these dictators. So they are every day being more and more aggressive about undermining our um, institutions, our social norms, our respect for one another, because even if we have strong laws and strong institutions, ultimately, we need citizens to act in good faith and to have a minimum level of trust in society where we can function uh, and, and where we don't have to assume that people are lying to us at every turn. So this is an inflection point and we need to decide you know, even though we do have some challenges, even though we do have some major disagreements on cultural issues in this country, uh, even though uh, our, our economy, uh, it's, it's still the strongest and the, the greatest economy in the world, which is why so many people are trying to get into our country constantly. But there are some challenges. There are some um, inequities uh, that you know, need to be addressed in, um, in a number of different ways. And of course, we would strongly disagree with uh, our friends on the left on how to address them. But what we should all agree on is that we need to have this um, system where we can have these debates and where we can be constructive in uh, reaching compromises, in negotiating. That's what makes us strong. That's what makes us different. That's what my dad used to tell me when I was a kid. He would say, you know, because he, he, he still to this day says the Americans because he thinks of himself as a, as a refugee. You know, he says the Americans uh, don't fight the way people did in my country. Uh, when they have disagreements, they talk about it, they figure it out, it out, and they move on. We have lost that. We are now more like the country that my father left, Cuba, where uh, because they couldn't agree on this social contract, they just gave one guy all the power. And, uh, and that guy, sure enough, uh, and his family uh, are still in power today over 60 years later, and they have destroyed the country, and there's no hope in Cuba, no opportunity, uh, no, no wealth to redistribute. 
So uh, we, uh, we are at an inflection point, Weston, and we need to choose the right path. And, uh, you know, every day I, I set aside my opinion, my views, uh, even some of my passions to remain committed to the truth. I think the most important thing we can do as a society is have a common truth. We shouldn't even have to call it a common truth, but that's how much things have deteriorated. Uh, and once we have a common truth, then we can figure everything else out. But we have lost that common truth. And we have people on the extreme right and on the extreme left manipulating the truth on a daily basis for their personal gain. And in doing so, they are weakening us all. Well, you got really close to answering my next question with, with that statement about the lack of commonly held truth. What is the, the appropriate way to talk about democracy and your concerns, my concerns around it? I, I fear sometimes that there's hyperbole about the decline of democracy in America, um, while at the same time having a real deep concern you know, about, for example, a lack of kind of commonly held values or truths uh, on the left. There is, it seems, a, an, an agreement that democracy in America has, is declining rapidly and that our core institutions lack trust and that it all could end very badly, very quickly. I mean, I juxtapose that. I mean, you and I are both Republicans. We live in very different parts of the country. I mean, my friends who are big Trump supporters are in the same breath, the most freedom-loving people you could find, right? I mean, they're convinced that their ideology and even their support for Trump is born out of a, a willingness to defend and, and promote freedoms. And I'm just wondering, like, exactly, exactly where are we? I mean, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it's as bad as some people say it is, but we certainly are trending in a direction that could well, be. Well, yeah, look, I, I do think people are at a point where the, the freedom has become relative. Like, People are for freedom as long as you agree with me. And uh, once you disagree with me, then, then no more freedom for you. And, and that's just not who we are. That's not why this country was founded. Uh, so I, I do think there's, there's some alarmism. There's alarmism on every issue. Uh, I, I, you, you know, I work a lot on climate change and a, a lot of Democrats tend to express themselves in a way that that make us hopeless when it comes to climate change. Oh, it's all over. If we don't do this or that in, in the next uh, 11 years, then forget it. Or, uh, you know, on, on the Republican side, you know, I've worked a lot on immigration, uh, even though it, it probably is the case now, you know, for years people have been saying, oh, well, you know, uh, the, the, um, you know the border is, is horrible and our country is being overrun by illegal immigrants. And, you know, people just tend to exaggerate and uh, when we overreact, when we exaggerate, uh, when we take alarmist positions and approaches, we, we turn off uh, a lot of people. So I, I do think that when it comes to these elections issues, the, the left uh, needs to be more disciplined and more sincere and sober about its criticisms. Uh, you know, certainly we all agree that uh, what former President Trump did is highly troubling and problematic, right? Making uh, false claims without any evidence, uh, trying to, uh, you know, based on uh, whatever his 
capricious nature overturn an election result. That's all wrong and we need to prevent that. Now here in Florida, uh, there were some tweaks made to our election laws last legislative session. Uh, they're not really gonna make a major difference in terms of who votes and how. I mean, minority voting in Florida is strong, has been strong for a long time. I don't uh, see that changing. Uh, and, and, you know, Democrats have overreacted saying uh, they're trying to keep certain people from voting in Florida. And, and then that's where you start losing the middle of the country. And that's where you start losing the opportunity to actually strengthen our laws to, to make it easier for people to vote while making sure that the people who say they're voting are the people who say they're voting, right? Uh, so, so we just really need a, a healthy, common sense, balanced approach to all of this and the extremes in their criticisms and in their faux outrage a lot of times end up uh, doing more harm than good and end up uh, becoming unwitting uh, co-conspirators to the people who are actually trying to make it harder for others to vote and to suppress uh, certain um, uh, people and groups from voting. The last question, you're really well positioned to give us an interpretation on uh, not too long ago, there were 63 Republicans who voted against a pretty basic bill reaffirming support for NATO. Uh, there were several different reasons given. You've got some fringe opinions on our side of the aisle about Putin and Russia. How do you explain uh, what has gone on in conservative politics, not just in America, but abroad, that has led to 63 members of the U.S. House being unwilling to just reaffirm basic support for NATO? Well, I, I do think this is part of Trump's legacy. Uh, the, uh, the lack of appreciation for our values, our system of governance, our respect for individual rights and responsibilities. I mean, fundamentally, that's what NATO is. It's of course it's a military alliance, but at the end of the day, it's it it doesn't just protect countries. It it protects ideas. It protects a way of life, a way of life that is under assault by the Putins and the Xi Jinping's and the Castros and Maduros of the world. They want to destroy our way of life. They do not want us to be free people uh, who go out into the world every day and make choices. They don't want that. And, and NATO is designed to protect that way of life. And there are some, and thankfully it's a minority, but there are some Republicans who have been uh, infected with, uh, with this uh, uh, virus or bacteria that uh, we don't have to care about uh, what happens in other parts of the world, that we don't uh, have to protect, um, you know, human rights and, and um, just uh, the, 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 uh, the right to be free. We do, we do, because ultimately, you know, if we don't act, uh, you know, the cost of inaction is far greater. Ultimately, problems will show up on our doorstep or 
inside our home, uh, as we saw on 9-11. Uh, we, uh, we, we need to understand that what happens everywhere in the world matters. That doesn't mean we can be the world police. That doesn't mean we have to fight every war, but we have to do as much as we can every day to lead the world. Because if we don't lead the world, the Chinese will lead the world or the Russians will lead the world, or terrorists would lead the world. And, and certainly we don't want that. That will uh, ultimately hurt us. It'll hurt our kids. It'll hurt our grandkids. It'll ruin uh, our way of life. It'll diminish our quality of life. So uh, I, I really hope we can root out uh, this, uh, this trend uh, in the Republican Party. I hope we can return you know, to a time when we understood uh, the the value uh, and how much we save by living in a world where our country is the leader. On the next episode of Swamp Stories, we'll look into the role of private philanthropy in the 2020 election and the importance of regular federal funding for state and local election administration. Thanks for listening to Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One, the country's leading political reform organization that unites Republicans, Democrats, and independence to fix our broken political system. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Even better, rate and review it on iTunes to help us reach more listeners. You can find out more at swampstories.org. I'm your host, Weston Womp. A special thank you to executive producer Ethan Rome, senior producer Evan Ottenfield, producer Sidney Richards, and editor Parker Tant from parkerpodcasting.com. Swamp Stories was recorded in Tennessee, edited in Texas, and can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.